Hey everyone, welcome to our podcast entitled The Original. The goal of this is to start a conversation centered around an idea. What if the church started over? We live in a culture where the word church has a lot of different meanings and emotions tied to it. So we want to look at the original intent to ask, if the church started over from scratch, what would it look like today? Over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be covering topics centered around this idea. And then for the final episode, we will take questions from you. My name is Jordan, and I'm here with lead pastor of Faith Chapel, Nate Petzl. So let's get started. Nate, thanks for being here. You're in a series right now with the same title, and we're looking at the original church that was set in motion. Um, so let's pretend for a moment that we have a clean clean slate. It's 2017, and the church begins today. What does it look like? What did Jesus want it to be? Oh, thanks, Jordan. So if the church started over again today, you know, interesting, I think that in terms of essence, nothing would change. It seems like the church has this very, very clear mandate, um, and it's this. It's go and make disciples of all nations, Uh, which then goes on to say baptizing them, um, teaching them everything I've taught you. And it's interesting, one of the things that churches do, and actually we've struggled with this even at Faith Chapel, is we're always trying to find a a mission statement. Um, But I think that the mission statement for the church would be the same if we were in the first century, or now here we are in 2017, is go and make disciples. There's this idea that we're perpetuating what Jesus came to the earth to do. So I think if Jesus hadn't come... uh, 2,000 years ago, and he came today, he would do the exact same thing. He'd say, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, that's an easy phrase, but there's a lot to unpack there. Well, what's a disciple? Is that someone who attends church? Is that somebody who's baptized? And that whole discipleship question is something that we've explored in the weekends, but there's a lot to that. One of the things I find fascinating is there is so little instruction in the Bible concerning what church is supposed to look like, okay? So, in terms of what your structure is supposed to be, we have some glimpses like um, in the book of Acts where the church is facing kind of its first little crisis, and uh, the crisis has to do with this. There's a a group of widows, and interestingly, the the widows who are Greek, meaning non-Jewish, aren't getting fed and cared for, Um, but the Jewish women are. So you have, best case scenario, a mild form of racism happening in the other church. So this is one of the first times where we see they actually make some sort of structure because Jesus didn't talk about structure. Um, Christianity's roots is grassroots. He didn't talk about church service style or liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. Some are ancient, um, some of the older churches, they do the same thing and have been doing the same thing for hundreds, even thousands of years. Uh, but even a church like Faith Chapel has a liturgy. If you've been to Faith Chapel, you know it's this. Um, we're going to get together. We're going to sing some songs up front. We're going to have uh, some sort of prayer time. We're going to take an offering, and then we're going to spend 30-some minutes teaching out of the Bible with a greeting in between. That's our liturgy. None of that is prescribed in the scriptures. In fact, one of the only times that we have uh, any glimpse into what a first or second century church service looked like is from one of the church fathers, uh, Justin. 
And he gives a brief description in what they did in their weekly meetings. And that's basically what we've built this off of. Paul will say a few things like gather together, sing some hymns, but church structure, how it's to be ordered. Now, we do have some instructions in terms of there's mention of deacons and elders and pastors, but Jesus gave almost no specifics into how the daily operations of the church were supposed to operate. Why? Well, I think that's made one of the th- that's one of the reasons why the church has been viable for two thousand years. Um, January, I went to Papua New Guinea sixty years ago. Uh, they were literally nations of people groups that were headhunters. Um, now, I was I was amazed. I was there participating in a conference. There's seven hundred people at the conference. There's sixteen hundred churches. Uh, in the movement of churches, we're a part of Foursquare, and the the message of Jesus works there. The church works there. Why? It's such a different culture from Billings, Montana. So what they've done is they've kept the core, but they've it's been adapted to their culture. So I think Jesus allowed that, this huge variety. There's two words people use. There's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is the content Okay, so you might hear a phrase like um, Orthodox Christianity, meaning uh, it's the core. These are essential teachings. Orthopraxy is your practice. And so orthodoxy, that remains intact. You know, this core message, the New Testament church called it the kerygma, the essentials. But the orthopraxy, how it's carried out, there's such a variety. And some of it is more attractive to us. Like depending on your age, your stage in life, um, but orthopraxy, I think there's tons of freedom, and that's that's part of what Jesus allowed. Sure, and I'm going to back up just a real quick second. But you talked about in Papua New Guinea that there were we're in a different culture and a different style, and Jesus made room for that. So as we look at what Jesus set up and what He wanted it to be. Um, maybe speak a little bit about how we're supposed to engage culture or how the church was intended to engage culture, um, and even in the orthopraxy, the practice of uh, making disciples and being the church. How does that look in a community setting? How does that look in practice? And I know there's a lot, I mean, every church has a different way of playing that out, but if we were to look at what we see in Acts or the New Testament, what were some of the um, positive effects or the forward momentum that you would see happening as a result of practicing out what Jesus had set in motion? Okay. Um, maybe I'll go back to that core passage that we'll be looking at throughout this series, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Um, it's just this beautiful description. It talks about uh, unprecedented growth. It talks about they enjoyed the favor of all the people. People were added to their number daily. There's miraculous things happening, and people are, have this sense of awe. Well, none of that comes from their specific mechanics on how they did church. It has to do with transformation and discipleship. So in Papua New Guinea, or we could pick any other place, in even any time frame, what are they doing? Well, they're making disciples. Now, how are disciples made? I'll talk about this actually this coming weekend. It's not necessarily uh, about a program. I think it's easy for us in the Western world to say, oh, here's how you become a disciple. Uh, We develop a program, a book. Jordan, truly, disciples are made 
through relationship. And I don't believe that the church mechanisms, so faith chapels, classes, or um, experiences we develop will ever effectively make disciples. One of the things that was unique any part of the world, any time in the Christian church is that it's people who have become disciples are the ones who make disciples. In fact, discipleship, I don't believe is possible outside of relationship. Now we tend to, especially in big churches, there's this draw to say, well, let's make it more efficient. Let's get a whole bunch of people together in a room and we'll teach them certain things. But discipleship is not information transformation. Uh, It's literal transformation. So it's not me trying to transfer more information because that doesn't actually make a disciple. What makes a disciple is walking with someone who's walked with Jesus. What made the first disciples? People walking with Jesus. And so there's this carry on now through 2000 years. The first disciples walk with Jesus. Now we walk with people who have walked with Jesus. And you do that century after century after century. That's discipleship. That's where people are changed. And as you talk about that, it kind of brings to mind that in a relationship, it's going to be a little bit messier. And so often, and maybe even some of the stigma that's around churches, some of the messiness that comes, you've got different denominations, you've got different breakouts and different things that have started. So what you're saying could probably be a lot messier in its practice. It could be a little bit less cut and dry, a little bit less clean in the way things look and a little bit less organized. Oh, yeah. I I think there's a desire. We want the church to be efficient. We want to um, do things well. However, because the church is filled with human beings who are frail and fallible, it's always going to be messy. Find me a church that's not messy, and I'll tell you that's an empty church. Because you have human beings who are frail and broken bringing uh, all of that brokenness into their relationships. So yeah, it, it's not as clean. It's not like it's not like a production line for uh, a, a cell phone. You know, all that's efficient. It's all sanitized. In fact, when they're making the microchips, I visited a microchip factory once. Everybody's in gowns and face masks because you don't want to pollute anything. Well, I wish I could say that that's what the church did. You know, it's the sanitation. But the church has never been. It's there's a sense in that it's sanitized because of what Jesus did on the cross, but there's always this messiness. There's going to be pain and disappointment along with elation and awe and growth. So yeah, it's not a it's not a production line. And I think there's a tendency for us, especially after the industrial revolution, is maybe some of the things that worked for making. Farm equipment and cars, we think, well, maybe we can do that making disciples as well. We, we, here's, the pro, here's the line. We put, this person puts this on. And I think um, discipleship probably was interchangeable with the word apprenticeship um, in the first century. We mentioned this, that uh, before we had organized colleges, trade schools, in order to learn something, you became an apprentice. So if you want to be a carpenter or you're going to be a doctor or a nurse, Um, traditional forms of education didn't exist. So even if it was a cobbler, you went and you spent, the typical thing in in the ancient world was seven years. So a young man, a young woman would go become an apprentice, spend seven years doing everything that the master did. Become an apprentice. After seven years, you now have the skills to do this on your own. No longer are you an apprentice. So would you say that as we look at this, this timeline 
that's set in motion. Is there anything that would, anything that we can learn from the early church on how to begin that relationship or even know, how do we know that we're making disciples? What are the markers? What are the ways to know? Like with an apprentice, you could look at someone and say, okay, you've completed this seven years or you can now achieve this, you know, professional skill. You can do that well. What are the markers today to say, this is a disciple of Jesus. This is a church that's walking in the original plans that that was set in motion that is that that is, that is maybe one of the key questions what's the mark of discipleship i would go back to what jesus says in john chapter 13 and then in the book of first john it, it's almost the entire content of the book jesus says here's going to be the unique hallmark it's that you love one another it's interesting the the measurement isn't when you finally have, you know, the 80 most popular verses in the Bible memorized, then you'll be a disciple. When you have um, worked through all the spiritual disciplines and become a master, then you'll be a disciple. Jesus says this is going to be the, the, the point of differentiation. It's when you love people the way I loved you. And so now this is challenging because uh, it makes me look internally. So I can't, I wish I could say, well, you know, my theological education makes me a disciple of Jesus. But according to the biblical measurement, that's not true. I could actually not be a disciple of Jesus and have spent years of my life studying the Bible. The question is, can I and do I love like Jesus loved? And if that is operative in my life, then I think that's the mark of being a disciple of Jesus. Now, one additional mark would be this. Part of the reason why the church grew so exponentially is they didn't focus on addition, but on multiplication. So the, the, the whole thing that Jesus set up was brilliant. And this is why in 300 years, uh, the Roman Empire is suddenly converting to Christianity. After ancient history dedicated to their, their ancestral gods... It's the mark is when disciples begin to make disciples. So I think love is your first one. But then when I'm a disciple and there's genuine love in my life, and interestingly, I don't think there's a, a time coefficient tied with that. I've seen people become genuine disciples of Jesus with love, and then there's deep personal transformation um, in, a, in a fairly short period of time. <laughs> And unfortunately, there's people who have said, yes, I want to be a disciple of Jesus and probably are not demonstrating the fruit of discipleship being love after years or even decades. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, but I think eventually when a disciple begins to make other disciples, so this is what the church did. It wasn't just adding one or two, but it's this, is uh, someone became a disciple of Jesus they made another disciple of Jesus through relationship and love. That person then disciples someone else, and it goes on and on. And if you could picture this in your mind, think of a triangle. At the top would be that original disciple. And then if they disciple two people a year, well, suddenly you've got a triangle with three points. But then if every one of those eventual disciples discipled one or two people a year, you're suddenly talking about in the span of one's lifetime, tens of thousands mm. of disciples. It's multiplication. And so I think that's part of what we can miss. Jordan, to be frank, some segments of the Western church are in trouble 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can read studies that overall in the U.S., the church is plateaued, best case scenario. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't individual churches that are thriving, but there are also a lot that aren't doing well. And I, I would just humbly say, I think it's because we've forsaken the art of discipleship at times. Mm-hmm. We just, um, sometimes it's easier to rely on a, like a, a mailing campaign. Yeah. <laughs> and it's easier to professionalize church and say, well, uh, just the pastor will disciple you. Right. Where the church grows, where culture has changed, is when disciples disciple disciples. And it goes on and on and on. Right. That's awesome. With with where we would set, you you bring up this this concept of the Western church plateauing. Um, what would you say, you even talked about it a little bit this last weekend, this concept of rebranding ourselves and beginning to maybe readopt some of these um, these simple yet complex ideas of, you know, love the way I loved you. It was what Jesus said, and then making disciples. As we look at rebranding or look at this plateau, what would you say we need to, is, is that is it that simple to, to begin this process of maybe seeing some churches thrive, to see um, the church become more of what it was intended to be? Is it that simple? Is that what you would suggest to an individual or to other churches? That's the plea? You know, I think it truly is that simple in terms of solution. The hard part is living it out. Mm-hmm. So think for a moment. Uh, most of us live in a home uh, where we don't have a front porch anymore. We're such a highly individualized culture where um, we are removed from people around us. Here's another tragic thing. Uh, studies tell us this, that a new follower of Jesus is most effective in reaching people far from him in their first year. Mm. So one of our issues is we pull people out of their cultural relationships, those relationships outside of church, and we bring them into church. And then suddenly within a year, all their friends are now other followers of Jesus. And so we've somehow missed that, that link. Um, I think part of that, Jordan, is we've got to figure out how can we be intentional about building relationship, true loving relationship. I'm not talking about like a fishing expedition. Sure. (laughs) You know, where you're you're trying to trick people and find them. But first, we need to have the value in our life that people matter Mm -hmm. to God. I mean, desperately, that um, the first John tells us that, you know, God loves everyone, and he died as an atoning sacrifice for all of them. So can I, can I look at the people in my neighborhood and say, that person is so loved by God. I, love comes from God. I've been filled with God's love. I want relationship with them, and my relationship with them is not dependent on whether or not mm. they ever become a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. It is genuine love. Too often, I, I, I say this humbly— I hear talks on what we call evangelism, and I'm a I'm a, a fly fisherman, and uh, and an archery hunter, and I'm amazed at how similar <laughs> our talks on evangelism sound like fly fishing tactics. <laughs> you know, it's all about deception, and can I get that right. fish? If I do the perfect presentation, and boy, this fly is really going to trick them. Then I've got them hooked. Then I take a picture. Then I let them go. So when it's when it's sponsored by anything 
other than genuine love. So we've got our massive individualism. Um, the other thing is uh, we have such a fascination with information and uh, some of what computers and the internet bring to us are beautiful, but um, I think there's the possibility, perhaps maybe a challenge I see ahead of us in the future is when my relationships are basically electronic, I think some good things can happen. But I'm not convinced that I can genuinely love someone via the internet. Mm -hmm. I, I see that as that could be the next potential thing that we really need to fight is that my friendships are virtual. Now, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the internet and computer technology because we can see where people are, are growing spiritually um, through, oh, it might be a podcast, it's some sort of video, all those things. But if discipleship, I don't think you can um, rely on technology for discipleship. I think it has to be that person-to-person mm -hmm. thing. It can help. It can enhance, just like a program at a church can help or enhance, but we can't rely on a program. It's people. Any program should be equipping. So I hope that any program that Faith Chapel develops is to equip people to make disciples, not to make disciples. Right. Right. Well, that's all the time that we have this week. Nate, th thank you so much for your time uh, jumping into this concept. Um, we'll be tackling... Um, where do we go from here um, and some of your questions as we move along. Uh, so tune in next time and thanks for listening.